You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm talking to you from Vox Media headquarters in New York City. Perry Chen is drinking coffee. Perry, why don't you give me your title at Kickstarter? Sure. I'm founder and chairman. I served as CEO a couple times, probably about for six years of our 10 years in total. You were, you were most recently CEO until a couple weeks ago, I think. Yeah, I think maybe it's about a month at this point, but yeah. Yeah, and depending on when you listen to this, you have Kickstarter has just turned 10 years old. Yes, yes, very, I think, exciting. I mean, it is exciting. It's also just, you know, 10 years is so long. It's, it's, uh, it's, a weird it's hard com- to believe. It's a weird company because it is both a noun, right, in the same way that Kleenex or Xerox is a noun. Everyone sort of knows what Kickstarter is, even if they can't identify you or the company. They know it's crowdfunding. Also, weirdly, for a sort of well-known, well-established internet company, you guys are pretty quiet. Um, not accused of, of throwing an election for Donald Trump or undermining democracy or being a haven for Nazis or or running weird uh, misinformation campaigns. So congratulations on that. <laughs> uh, more positively, you've, you've generated, what, four-plus billion for various projects? Uh, that, yeah, I think that sounds that's right. That's an astonishing number. Uh, thank you. I mean, um, what's really interesting is a couple of years ago there was a— uh, economic impact report done by a um, UPenn um, researcher. And it talked about kind of how the secondary effects of the of the money raised and the projects on Kickstarter was, I think, an additional, I hate to get this wrong, but it's like you could do 2.5x of the money raised for like the trickle-down impact. So you raise X money for this project and then that then that project then employs these people or right. they so generate this out, much can, more Right, you go out in the world and you spend, the $4 billion is spent on putting the film together, making the book, designing the thing, and that in turn creates this kind of uh, economic um, economic impact, including, you know, the creation of organizations, part-time and full-time jobs, hundreds of thousands. Um, so it's pretty amazing. It's not, you know, at our heart and soul, our primacy, our primary thing is that these projects exist in the world and they have this kind of qualitative effect on people, right? What is it to go see a see a film? What is it to go see and like have an object that makes you think like all these things? But this secondary stuff is real uh, and it's, you know, we appreciate it. It's And it's something, again, we didn't anticipate. It just kind of what we learn is what occurs. Yeah, I want to I talk a little bit about sort of how you started and what you were thinking about this when you started. The, 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 everyone has a founding myth, basically, for their company. Some of them are made up. Mm-hmm. hoping yours is accurate. It's, it's, you had this idea, you're in New Orleans in 2001, you're doing music, and you have this idea for a crowdfunding thing. Then it takes you about eight years more to, to actually launch it. 
You're not calling this a crowdfunding idea, right? No, I mean, it's got to be at least a decade before that maybe term existed. Maybe right. not, you know, but g- better part of a decade. So your thought was, I wish there was a thing on the internet that helped me raise money to do a thing? Well, you know, I think a lot of the ideas that really work tend to be the kind of where they come from scratching the the person's own itch, who, yeah. is, who is the kind of, uh, who, who like begins the journey. Um, and so for me, I was I was living in New Orleans uh, I was probably mid-20s or so, maybe early 20s. And I wanted to throw a concert uh, during the Jazz Fest in New Orleans, which is obviously one of the biggest events of the year. Not in the official capacity, but there's all these hundreds of little concerts that happen around it during the, the two weeks of the Jazz Fest. So I wanted to do that. I wasn't a music promoter. I was just a DJ and a musician. I love music, and I wanted to bring these artists in from Austria. I thought it would be a great event. Um, however... You know the costs were going to be high. You I think it was about fifteen thousand bucks or something, all in with the venue. Yeah. And I did some of my legwork, and I, you know, I realized I talked to the venue, but at the end of the day, I was like, "Yeah, I don't think I can." Do I can't this. front this. Yeah, I can't. Or if I do, this is just like everything. It's just like yeah. it's all. <laughs> you know, what really bothered me was I was like, I think the artists would really enjoy it, getting an opportunity to come to New Orleans, experience Jazz Fest. Some of their music had been influenced by New Orleans music, even though it was electronic. I think the audience would really like it, seeing like the lineage of kind of New Orleans music and then going to late night events um, and seeing like how like more contemporary ways it's being used and twisted. And so I thought it would work. However, I just couldn't take the risk. And was this always going to be an internet idea? Because 2001 is post-internet boom, but the internet is still there. The internet hasn't gone away, but the idea of like making businesses on the internet has gone away temporarily. Yeah, I think, right. And and I didn't necessarily, I wasn't so aware of this, right? I never, I wasn't really working you know, I never worked in the internet space prior. So for me, I was just like, oh, thinking about could this exist online or this should exist online. And then, as you say, it's a different era. This is pre-social media in the way we have it now. This is MySpace yeah. and pre-YouTube and pre-video being like so ubiquitous, certainly user-generated video. So in my mind, you have to imagine the thing I'm jumping off of is eBay. Right, like a listing-based service, probably photo-driven, copy-driven. Craigslisty. Yeah, like, you know, somewhere between yeah. those two things, right, with this kind of mechanism of, of funding. So that that's really the birth of it, and it was only in the eight years it took that all these things rose. And when did you decide this, is be, this, this moves from this would be a cool thing for me to have or this would be a cool thing for me to enable the next Jazz Fed concert I want to run to? This is a business that I want to do. This is a business that I want to run and spend all my time working on. For me, the way it sat was, this is something that should exist. Um, I, I had no inclination to start a business. As I said, I was living in New Orleans. I was working on music. For me, I'm like, that's what you do after you like grind for 40 or 50 years and maybe if you can make it happen. I was living that life at that point. You know, I didn't have a ton of money, but it's like, why would I go, why would one go off and do something for a long time that's really, really hard and ultimately probably to come back there. And I'm already living the life that I want to live when I'm 50. I'm living the life that I want to live and I found my peace, you know? Um, and it doesn't involve having a lot of money. And so really what, what drove me ultimately and part of why it took a while was I thought it was a good idea, but, you know, I had to see why it would be something I would do. And it was only because really understanding that this is just not my not my problem but all my my fellow artists and creators' uh, problem, which is the, that, you know, it's hard to get funding for things. So it became bigger than just, hey, I would like this to exist. It became this, this could really 
be an important piece. So we flash forward to 2009. You've picked up two co-founders, mm-hmm. a little bit of funding. I was listening to an interview you did the other day. You had David Cross as an initial backer. Yes, David Cross thing. from Arrest Development and many other things. Mr. Mr. Show. Show. Mr. Show. I, lo- I love that David Cross is your seed money. The, he was our first investor. And, um, yeah. and, so, and so as you, and I remember, I remember seeing you guys sort of around. He's the hidden force behind, um, behind uh, the technology boom. It's fantastic. I love it. Um, <laughs> Because I think he's off the internet again. He was on for a while. Um, I remember seeing you guys around New York startup land, and sort of there's a class of New York startups: Tumblr, Etsy, uh, Foursquare. That, I think that would be an interesting retrospective of, of that cohort. Yeah. I really think right now is an incredible time to kind of look back at that. I was just talking to Dennis Crowley about that. Right, the Foursquare, Tumblr, Etsy, Meetup. Yeah, I think of Twitter as a New York. Really, uh, I, it's not obviously, but it, just because there were so many people on the investment side, Union Square, and those guys were always sort of hanging out in New York. I, I think of them sort of in that class, even though hmm. San Francisco gets to claim them. But so, and all of those were sort of well, they're, they're all different stories. Uh, David Carp was doing this thing as a project for high school. So when when you guys get around to okay, now we've got some real money. We're actually launching this site. Um, if we flash all the way forward to now, you guys are a public benefit corporation. We'll talk about that. You're, you're mission-driven. You're a for-profit company, but you're different than your sort of standard internet company. Was that clear in your head in 2009 that we're going to do this, but it's going to be a sort of a different take on capitalism than, um, than the standard internet company would be? Not in the – like, so yes in terms of like ultimately what how we were going to make decisions. No in terms of like – the deep understanding of the law and the corporate structures and the mechanisms that will be required. So even when we raised money, you know, we told our investors that, you know, we're not going to profit maximize. We're not going to just do whatever it is to make money. We're not going to, um, we don't want to go public. Um, we don't want to sell the company. So all these things, which are really about uh, mission primacy, um, you know, I think even terms like mission focused, which we use and like are kind of almost, um, they don't serve really what it is well. Like, I think it's really easy for people to understand nonprofits, the green pieces of the ACLUs of the world, yeah. to understand their mission, primacy, the environment, the First Amendment. Um, I think when we get to kind of like the the space we're in, which is kind of, you know, in the spectrum, but in the non in the binary world of eat the world sociopathic for profit, fully not nonprofit, sitting in the middle in a way, you know, it's do people interpret when you say mission like a for profit, which is like, just some stuff we write on the wall right. to convince everybody that they're actually doing something positive, or is it like a nonprofit, which is like literally that's why they exist. It is definitely like a nonprofit, right? That's why we exist, full stop. And you knew that going in? Yeah, because I have no interest in working at like a technology company. So when you're talking to someone like a Fred Wilson from yeah. Union Square who who does a lot of interesting stuff but is very much focused on getting a return, it's mm-hmm. his, his job, and, and, and again, that class of internet startups he invested in did amazing. Um, when you have that conversation with Fred Wilson and say, we're never going to sell this company, we're mm-hmm. never going to go public, i.e. you're really, it's going to be very difficult for you to make money on this investment. How does that conversation go? Yeah, I mean, I think that I've always found that you know, people have said before, like, you're inv- you, you get married to your investors. And, and I think that's a really important kind of way pe- to talk about it because I think often it's easy to focus both from the investor's perspective and the entrepreneur's perspective or, or whoever they're talking with, the CEO, on, like, getting the deal done. But the thing is you're going to work with these people for a very long time. And it's, it's, it's if you tell each other things that aren't true— convenient lies off it or convenient yeah. half-truths. Like we trust the entrepreneur or 
don't worry, I want this to be super, super, super big, just to get the deal signed and like move on, it will always come back to bite you, just in the same way it would in a romantic relationship, I think, as well. So I think with Fred and other investors at the time that, you know, also invested in kind of more classical, classic startups, I think my, my approach was always just tell them how it is, tell them how you plan to make decisions, yeah. and then if there's a way it can work for them, then you can move to the next stage of conversation, which is to, like, try to understand, is that true? Because I'm wondering if they had the same conversations with people, you know, with, with the Twitters and Etsy's of the world, and, you know, those are companies where I think Fred Wilson has publicly said, yeah, I had, I had to fire the, the CEO. I think, I think he said he had blood on his hands once uh, oh, Jesus. about firing Jack Dorsey years ago. Or I can't remember who he killed. Um, <laughs> the, the point is, um, I'm sure he had meaningful, deep conversations oh. with lots of folks. And in the yeah. end, there's a decision about we need to push this founder out or we need, to, we need, to, we need to get a return. We need to sell the company. You're, you're from the get-go saying, yeah. I'm not into that. Yeah, I, I think that there's— um I would encourage entrepreneurs to think about there's three vectors that you have to think about. Okay, one is it's not just the paper. It's not just the contracts, right? It's also like you're having a conversation with a person. So are you being upfront with them? You know, are you being ethical, telling them what you plan, letting them make the decision, and um, choosing open eyes to go into this uh, arrangement with you, yeah. meaning that later, I believe you have the moral authority that if they're coming at you, hey, I don't know my LPs, you could say, look, look, it's not what you told me. That's just one. Now, the other thing, too, is you remember that this person is also just playing a role, right? They can, somebody else could be sitting in that seat representing the, 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 the fund or the family or the institution. If you're a nonprofit, you know, it could be MacArthur, like mm -hmm. different people could be sitting in the seats representing their role. And they may not share the opinions of the people that were there that made the deal, and that's actually appropriate. So you want to also make sure, okay, contractually, really legally. I want to. I want to protect you, myself. You get if down if, to if this. you get hit by a truck or you quit or yeah. whatever. What's, that, the, what's the legal relationship? Right. What's the contractual relationship? So you want the kind of ethical, moral. Um, we, we've laid out our truths. We've agreed here. The second is that contractually. If, even if it's not you. Right. I've looked you in the eye and we've made a deal. And then uh, we're also going to have a contract that protects me if you're no longer here. Sure. Exactly. And I think both ways it should protect you that I am also living up to the way I've, I've yeah. positioned it. I, I, don't, I don't love the investor as boogeyman kind of thing because I think we're all the boogeyman. You know, um, what's the third one? Oof. We can come back to it. I do. I do. I think that's interesting what you said about the investor being the boogeyman because it's, it's come up in the, the sort of media discussions the last few years. Like, oh, it's the venture capitalist fault that these media companies aren't succeeding. Yeah. They put too much money in or they put too much pressure in or they force them to sell or they yeah. force. And from what I can tell, I think at least half of that is mm. wrong. And, and at a minimum, mm. the people who are running the companies need to bear at least half the blame. The third thing I do recall, and, I, and at first I just want to say I totally agree with what you're saying. Um, it's, you know, to be shared, you know, and I think it's a, I mean, it's a really good conversation to have. I think the third thing is like, what is it that you're ultimately doing a deal with, right? So there's so many different types of investors. There's the individual that can invest in whatever they want. Yep. It's their money. However, there's people who represent institutions and funds and they're representative. So you want to understand, okay, ultimately, what is this thing that is ultimately giving the money that I'm making the deal with? So you need, for in this instance, to understand, say, what is a, you know, what would you, what is Union Square, right? 
what is the the arrangement they have with their with their LPs, their right. investors? Who are their LPs? Oh, their pension funds, which means yeah. their fund, or even just that. What is right. the auspices of the relationship with the yeah. fund? What have they promised them? What are the returns they promised them? What are the what are the rules that they're going to operate to? Whether it's fair to somebody else sitting in the seat, and so you want to understand all those things and then build something that could like that is fair and works for all that, and then you have to allow everybody to be able to say this doesn't make sense for us. And I go in, into every conversation with somebody institutional, really being like trying to convince them it doesn't make sense because I would only want to work with somebody who really is like, can convince me why. I think there's 99.9% of the time, it wouldn't have made sense for a Kickstarter to work with a, with a fund. I think there was just a confluence of reasons why with Fred, with Union Square at that time, with the, with the low valuation it was at the early stage, with, this very, with the very relatively very small amount of money that Union yeah. Square was putting in, that those things allowed that to occur. And then even with that, for example, a lot of people don't know, Fred's been on our board for almost 10 years now, but that's not a board seat that USV, uh, quote unquote, owns. And that was part of the thing. We're like, you know, you know a lot, um, love to work with you. USV doesn't have a deal that that gives them a board seat. Right. And so it's like things like that, where it's like, I wouldn't presume that there aren't things I could learn from, from the experience that Fred has had. But also to say that tying in a seat for Unisquare in perpetuity is not something that I feel is appropriate for what we're doing. However, as long as it works, which has worked wonderfully, just as an individual, Fred has been amazing. I mean, you know, uh, he's made I, zero dollars. The guy's worked on our—he's been on our board for nine you're years. His like zero, yeah. You're his least successful investment. You're his least successful investment. I don't know about least successful, but yeah, that, that's—I think that's a better way to put it. Least successful successful investment in terms of fun. In I, terms, I want yeah. to talk more about structure, um, but first, and, and we'll take a break in a second. But I, I do want to just go back to to when you launched. When when because I think this is an interesting thing that people sometimes talk about. When you launch in 2009, when does it click? Like, oh, not only is this working sort of at a small scale, but this could really get big. This could eventually be a $4 billion thing plus however much economic uh, benefit. <laughs> it's funny because I think that sometimes you start, you know, when you're, you know, at the beginning, it's like you're doing everything, right? It's the kind of classic um, entrepreneurial yep. thing, right? Like I was- Garbage has to get taken out. You got to do it. I'm, I wrote all the copy on the website for the first two years as well. And like- so everything's one inch in front of you. And then to do this, it was never, I was like, I was like, this should exist in the world. And then Charles and Yancey, we, we met and it was like, this should exist in the yeah. world. Yeah, my co-founders. And then, you know, early employees, you know, very early, it's like, this should exist in the world. Like the ones that helped us build it even before it existed. And, and really that's it. Like that's as far as we got. Like, it's funny. Like we didn't have projections mm -hmm. and like all these things were like, this should exist. That's what drove us. When we launched, Within the month, there was a project by this uh, woman, Allison Weiss, who's a singer-songwriter, and she was in Georgia. And she put up a project, like she'd gotten an invite from somebody. The first six months, we had an uh, invite system where we just gave out invites and let them just go. And, you know, woke up in the morning, literally, I remember, like, going, you know, you see how many, what's new. There's probably three new projects. And it was, she had nailed it. It's like, it's like probably the first time somebody saw on Twitter where somebody took 140 characters and nailed it. And you're like, oh, this is a format. <laughs> do, you, do you remember how much you raised? I'm going to guess maybe less than 10000 yeah. probably between five and 10000 for an album, uh, an acoustic yeah. album. Um, but it was just, her video was so good. Again, we didn't coach her at all. She just knew how to use it. Her rewards were really smart. One of her backers, like, put her over the, the, the goal in the first day or two. And she, like, 
did a, like, she, like, Skyped with the woman who she didn't know in Australia, recorded that Skype session, and so, like, posted This is the update. thing we made, and it's being used exactly the way we sort of imagined it might work. And wow. better. Yeah. And better. And, like, like you know, the theory is one thing, right? Like, I think yeah. often we li- we, we're in a moment now where we live in ac- academic, theoretical world often. This was, like, in practice. And then when did this sort of, like, you know, classic internet hockey stick thing happen? We're like, oh, or, or you Never. Know, no, it didn't. Kickstarter is never hockey sticked. We had that kind of, I don't know, what do you call this? It's a kind of like a slope. Uh, yeah, like yeah. a nice 45 Healthy, degree yeah. thingy. Healthy, reasonable business line. And that was a blessing. It's a huge blessing. I can't, I really empathize with entrepreneurs and staff and board members uh, and even users of companies where they have the hockey stick, where it's the classic servers are melting. We need 100 people here this month. I mean, I can't imagine what that does to decision-making and culture and all those things. And so the companies change. Every time that happens, the company, literally the company that started and the company that's there at the end of that cycle is a different company. That makes sense. But I also remember there was just such a wave where, like, everyone's doing a Kickstarter and my inbox is full of people <laughs> trying to promote their company via a Kickstarter mm-hmm. and it's a, now a verb. And I, weren't you, like, a Time 100 person? Like, it seemed like there was definitely a moment for you oh, where yeah, you had yeah, real yeah. velocity. No, I mean, uh, for sure. I mean, I don't mean to say that, like— I just think, you know, if you have that slow, steady climb at some point, you know, people catch on in a way and it's more prevalent in the media. And then uh, there's always been uh, press around projects, Mm -hmm. you know, so if like there'll be a big project, then there'll be a press moment. And maybe that seems like it's, you know, speaks to where the company is at in a moment. But sometimes it's just here's an interesting project that that somebody's interested in the media. All right. Well, well, let's let's think about hockey sticks. We're going to take a quick break and hear from an advertiser who may be having a hockey stick moment of their own. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We are back with Perry Chen. You have just heard what we call a programmatic ad. We hope you listen to it, right, Perry? Advertising is evil. What? Advertise. We love advertisers. They no. support this show. It's attention economy. So let's talk about that. Bringing down democracy and all that. Was was that was did that did that theory of sort of commerce and advertising and capitalism? We talked about this a little bit. Um, again, from the get go, was that was that sort of baked into your projects that this would be a way for people to create art, media, other projects, and not have to sort of go through traditional funding mechanisms. Um. You know, I I almost want to say it's it was a little even it was like more simple. Yeah. Um, it was like at the end of the day, for artists, creators, people want to make things. I think that the more funding channels, you know, they're so constrained, they're so hard to get that it, we just wanted to create another alternative. Just more options, and and we wanted to make our alternative something that we felt was, you know, that you could be you know proud of and you could stand by and you maybe didn't have to make certain sacrifices, um, whether it's creative or ethical, for that channel. So how do you feel about the fact that sort of your mechanism, right, the idea of crowdfunding loosely, 
has now been picked up and copied and modified or attempted to be used by everyone from other companies that pretty much do exactly what you're doing, like Indiegogo, to things that are much more generic, like GoFundMe. Uh, Patreon has a subscription version of this. And then periodically you see the biggest companies in the world, right? YouTube and Facebook trying to like pick up a piece of what you've done. Um, Does that make you feel proud? Like, I did a cool thing. You guys are all figuring it out. Or like, YouTube should not be doing a crowdfunding thing. I mean, you know, I think ownership over ideas is a tricky thing. Uh You know, I think that once they're out there in the world, people will build on them. To me, all these things you mentioned, actually, I understand if it like can all fall into one parent. But like, I really see like all the very the differences in them that are really material in my mind. And I think that a lot of these things were things that, you know, I think focus is really important. You know, our mission is to help bring creative projects to life. Our mission is not to be the largest crowdfunding company. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really instructive on a day-to-day basis as to like, what do you... What do you want to do? Because, um, again, like the, the GoFundMe thing now, mm-hmm. sadly, has become a way people uh, yeah. pay, cover medical costs. I, I think they raise more money on an annual basis through GoFundMe than we do at this point, I would guess. It's I mean, bananas you know? and sad. But on the other hand, you'd think, well, if people are already using Kickstarter to fund someone's acoustic mm-hmm. album, why not help them also pay for a surgery they need, which is also going to allow mm-hmm. them to produce an album in a year from now? Um, similarly, uh, Patreon, which is an interesting company. Jack Conti is an interesting guy. Uh, the big difference, right, is there. it's a subscription service, essentially, right? We're going to pay you on a recurring basis because we want to support you, whereas you mm-hmm. guys are project-based. Yep. You tried a version of this, I think, called Drip, right? Yeah, so we did this kind of R&D side project um, called Drip that, uh, that's still out there, but it's invite-only. We've closed the invites, and it's going to— um, Andy Bayo and Andy McMillan from XOXO, yeah. um, really incredible kind of uh, community, are in the process now of kind of— working on the next gen of it, which hopefully won't be much, you know, you know, sometime this year, we'll, we'll, we'll all learn more. But yeah, you know, our focus has always been on this, this, this way of doing it, right? So the properties are, one, it's project-based, as you say. The other is um, that the funding is conditional, mm-hmm. right? You know, you have to reach the goal that you set to get the money. The other is it's a, a rewards-based kind of patronage, not like you get 1% like an investment model, right. um, which I think some, as the laws have shifted in certain places, people have tried kind of some of the crowdfunding investment kind of Has not really taken off. Has not really taken off, correct. And so for us, there, there really has continued to be this, this real focus on trying to continue to iterate and perfect um, a tool for helping creative projects come to life. And I think that speaks to maybe some of the, uh, I need money, you know, for surgery or something like that, you know, why we've never done those things. How often do you have that conversation internally? Like, we should do this either because our audience wants to do it, our, our users want to do it, uh, our, our creatives want to do it. Um, it would allow us to make a bigger business and that's could be a good thing. Yeah, I think the important thing, again, is the primacy of, a lot of the questions you're asking would be if we were a classic corporation um, with a sh- with a shareholder primacy, meaning that the ultimate goal is maximizing shareholder value, yeah. and you debate short or long term, but that's it. Again, with an organization like ours, which is to help creative projects come to life, that's the primacy. And so every th- conversation you have has that in the room. And what about the version of the conversation is, right, primacy, focus on mission, that's all good. On the other hand... There's no reason that we have to do things exactly the way we did them 10 years ago. Oh, of Every, course. We should evolve. We, we should, should try new things. Yes. And if we're bottled yeah. up, we're eventually going to No, but the thing is, is you try new things, yeah. absolutely, to help creative projects come to life. 
that's the primacy. The primacy is not keep doing what we're doing. You shouldn't do that. You evolve to better serve your mission. But you to better serve the mission you have, right? Say for Greenpeace, there's probably, I don't know their mission, but something about the environment. Yeah. And that's really more of what I'm saying, not the, not the specifics of how you go about and do those things. Right. So the, 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 your version of Patreon, right? You wouldn't call it that, but the, your subscription style mm-hmm. thing that was drip, that makes sense to me, right? Like mm-hmm. it's the same mission, but we're not going to make it specific to a project. We're still going to have mm-hmm. the same end goal, which is to help yeah. someone make something cool. And we still focus on the same group we focus on Kickstarter, which is not subscription use for any type of thing, which still was kind of the same kind of cohort of, of ultimately to people that are um, looking to produce creative projects. Yeah. Um, so when we launched it, it was within that prism as well. So why do you think that didn't work for you guys? Well, I mean, I think a couple of things. One is that um, I think classically focus is always so important. You know, it was, you know, it was an R&D thing. You know, it was kind of invite only. I think that it's good to kind of sometimes, you know, you, you got to take a little bit of risk. Otherwise, you end up being, as you say, you don't evolve. You also need to be able to to try things and then, you know, pull back at the right moments, um, and you learn. And and, uh, and I think that, you know, I think that we tried to really do something really narrow, which is like we're not going to just do subscriptions. We want to do subscriptions for this cohort, and um, and see if we can help drive forward the space. You know, we're not interested in market share. It's like, can we help make subscriptions something more viable for the types of creators we serve? Um, I think subscriptions is 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 has been showing legs in in the digital media space for uh, like like re- recurring yeah. digital media. I think for other things, um, podcasts, web series, things like that. For, I think for other things, it still hasn't yet shown it's an yeah. effective uh, broader tool. And so I think we were trying to see if you know could we since that's our our market or, or the or the creators we serve to, to serve our mission. We wanted to see if we could kind of push the conversation forward through that. You guys have done a lot of technology-focused stuff, a lot of gadgets, um, and then a lot of media-focused stuff. Um, is, there a, is there a kind of Kickstarter project you would love to see more of that just hasn't really happened for some reason? Or hasn't happened with the same velocity or volume? I mean, I think at this point we're really past the point of hasn't really happened yeah. because it's been over 150,000 projects. You know, the, the projects that, that raise a ton of money or that really fit with the kind of focus that the that is really prevalent in the media get, get the press and mm-hmm. go out there. But if you really go dig in deep, yeah. But you guys also put out your numbers and you say this is this is where the bulk of our stuff has been happening. You can sort of see it, right? But if you go and see that, you're going to see the bulk in music and film, not in um, not in the areas that get the most press. Actually, uh-huh. okay. Um, when you see the most dollars, then you start to like see it differently. But you see the most projects, like the amount of music projects that are funded that raise six thousand dollars. You know, it's it's really large, short films, things like that. And so I get it. You know, it's like the sexier, the quote-unquote sexier stuff for press, um, it does it does start to feel uh, outsized. But all this to just say to your question, I, I do think that um, we've kind of seen, you know, the, there is a way where Kickstarter if, is like a cultural map, right? It's like a map of culture. You see kind of, Things, subcultures in 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 the creative world that are kind of coming up. You start to see the small projects that that come onto Kickstarter that are that are these scenes, these genres, like maybe not being birthed, but kind of not so too you're far getting after. Sort of an early warning system, like this is this is bubbling up in the culture. This is interesting. Yeah, and I don't, you know, I, it's 
the, the, the truth is, is that how much we're paying attention to that, like where we're like kind of, you know, where we have a map or we're like, oh my God, look at this new genre bubbling up. Like that would be awesome. And I think those are the kind of things that are really exciting. How much could we do something like that, that, that could then again, serve helping creative projects come to life? Could we notice nascent creative movements and find ways to like— I'm right away going to like, oh, and then you could <laughs> you could sell that to someone because that's important information. Yeah, no, we're not trying I to sell it. I could see bristling even without asking it, yeah. I mean, like, look, I'm not trying to be—I'm I'm a pragmatist, and, like, you know, uh, any kind of strong opinion I have around things like, for example, advertising, like, it doesn't come from, like, a kind of—it only comes from the fact that I believe that fundamentally it ends up driving the attention economy, which I think is undermining um, our general— Sanity and consciousness, and so it's not. I'm not really interested in demonizing individuals, you know, or individuals. Ad supported podcasts that you're on. Look, I mean, look, uh, you know, there's a lot of artists and creators that that have taken you know money and sponsorships yeah. and done commercials and things like that. And you know, again, I, that's why I say, like, I really the one thing I am I question in the the, the place we are right now in, in culture and in discourse is, you know, when things get the conversations get too academic. And we live in a practical world. Um, so I think there's a place for both, but it can't just be academic. And like, if I were to sit here and say, you guys shouldn't do any advertising, I wholly believe this with my heart. However, I understand that people that are, you know, here are ma- trying to make practical decisions. Well, then maybe we don't even have a podcast to exist. And uh-huh. the, the impact the podcast could have doesn't exist. And so how do we even judge that? These are hard things to decide. And then are we here to basically solve this problem or are we just one tiny cog that ultimately, you know, has to go the way the wind blows? And again, you're not prescriptive about that, right? Within sort of the boundaries of we have these rules about what kind of project can work here, but if you want to do this and then eventually create an ad-based business, Godspeed, we're not going to stop you from doing that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we're trying to appropriate that much control, especially over creators. What? We can say what you can and can't do on our platform. I do remember, again, this is when I would assume the first few-ish years of you and uh, mm-hmm. of Kickstarter and when it, again, sort of kicked off and all of a sudden, you know, Warner Brothers was crowdfunding. Uh, now, I'm, I'm always confused whether they actually used Kickstarter or someone like you mm. to fund a, a Buffy the Vampire. No, no, it was a Veronica Mars movie, right? We did have a Veronica Mars movie. And yeah. Zach Braff, the guy from— Yeah, uh, he did— uh, Zach Braff, Spikely. Yep, and and so there was, and every time sort of that would come up, there'd be like, wait, this isn't what Kickstarter is supposed to be used for. People were upset by it. And again, my inbox would just be full of people Mm. who were using you as a marketing mechanism the same way that IPOs were supposed to be marketing mechanisms in 1999, right? The thing existed so people would pay attention to Mm it. I'm assuming from the little I know about you and the little Mm. conversation we've had that you must have bristled about some of that. Um. I think it's interesting. I would say that I am certainly somebody who, in general, when I see something where the celebrity and the brands and all this stuff is coming, I'm like, damn, it's over. So I'm super sensitive to kind of like the reactions of people. The party got too big. It's not cool anymore. Forget cool. I mean, this is utilitarian stuff. Like, you know, I'm an artist. We're trying to get work done. Like, I think a lot of artists and creators who are there to be cool and creators who are there to like, just get the work done. I've always loved filmmakers because filmmakers, like cool musicians, and I love music. I'm from music. Cool musicians, in their mind, is always like, how does this make me look? A filmmaker is like, I'll wash your car, I'll clean your house. Like, I just want to make my movie. And I want someone to see it. Yeah, and, and, I, and I really admire that. I really admire how they like put, can put the ego aside. 
I'm sure a lot of musicians would like to. I know it's a more ego-driven business, so I, so I don't, you know, I know it's something they may have to deal with more. But reorient me. What was your question again? I'm just, getting there. Just sort of how, I, I, again, I don't know if it actually happened or if it was just my, my memory. Oh, uh, yes, sorry. Like Motley Crue yeah, yeah. was showing up so, in my inbox so, saying we've got a new Kickstarter <laughs> for an album. Well, there was, there was a Motley Crue, but like, for example, the example I like to talk about is the great Spike Lee. Um, I don't know what people think. I don't know how if people think that Spike Lee can call up Hollywood and Hollywood's just like, where do we wire the money? That's just not how it works. So who more is a place that's to help creative projects come to life for than an independent filmmaker, Spike Lee, who has a canon of work and wants to make a film and isn't so easy for him to get the money? And when he does, they're probably like, okay, Spike, why don't we change this and why don't mm-hmm. we change that? Who is it for? I don't... I don't understand when people say, oh, you're too successful. Now, if he's trying to make a Burger King ad, yeah. But that's not what he's trying to do. He's trying to make an independent film with a script he wrote in the way he wanted to make it. And he was going to go to his fans, who he's given his work to for 20 years, and ask them for their support. I mean, I get the impulse of celebrities to hear something must be bad or wrong. But I just say underneath it, it's wrong. Not only that, but the results of Spike Lee bringing his, ten, his thousands and thousands of people was we saw people who came to back Spike Lee's project go on to back onto their independent filmmakers. So as opposed to what people thought is like, oh, my God, people are going to come to Kickstarter and they're going to see Spike's film and they're going to give him 10 bucks instead of mine. That's not how it works. He promotes it. He brings people in. And then now those people go and some of them, a few percentage, back other projects and brought— you know, that, that's meaningful. So bring it on, Spike Lee. Bring it on, Zach Braff. If you have a cool thing you want to do, or if you have a thing you want to do and it fits in our parameters, fine. We're not worried about being sort of appropriated as a marketing mechanism. No, I think you, you want to be worried about that. What I'm saying is that this manifestation is not that. Yeah. I understand why it can seem like, oh, it's, it is that. But that case, the, the, the Spike Lee, um, you know, these independent creators coming, to me, is not the case. Uh, th- that's not the case. So I don't mean to say, like, there's still a lot of things, you know, that we, we, don't, we don't do. Um, as opposed to all the other sites you mentioned, for the most part, which are like anything, yeah. we, we are probably the tightest by far. But what we do and we don't, we're trying to keep it a space for, for, for creative work. But, you know, it's unfortunate. I understand how it occurred. I think that, uh, you know, those guys and, and Spike had to go through like a whole media cycle where he was getting hit. And I think it's really unfortunate, especially for somebody like him. But, you know, we released a blog post trying to, like, show some of the numbers to show how that this sense of, like, it's a pie getting cut up amongst creators and now these big names are taking a bigger piece. Actually, it's not how it works. The pie is still getting sized, right? And, yeah. and he's bringing people to the—he's bringing pie—you know, some— I don't know, some pie makers or I like, something. I like that. I'm hungry. So the metaphor is working in some way. You know? Let's take one more quick break. Maybe we'll hear from a sponsor. Maybe we'll hear from one of my friends at Fox Media who wants to tell you about one of their shows. Who knows what we're going to hear? It's programmatic. We'll be right back. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. 
Back here with Perry Chen, who's going to go to Chinatown after after we have this conversation. You, you grew up in New York City? Yes. Yeah, yeah. born in 76. Um, grew up in the city, you know, in the 80s and, and 90s. Different city. Uh, yeah. And um, You do not meet a lot of native New Yorkers this is something in I, this business. If you don't mind, I yeah. want to talk about this. Um, I hear this over and over, right? The spaces that I'm in a lot these days in art or, or around Kickstarter, you hear this a lot. Oh, my God, a real New Yorker. Yeah. Um, and it's true. Sometimes like, it means Westchester. I, uh, right. But, you know, every once yeah. in a while, like, you know, I also meet somebody and we're like, oh, you're from the city? You're from the city? And we're like, and I looked up the stats a few years ago because I was like, this is befuddling to me. And it's about, you know, 50-50 in New York City, uh, uh, New York City born and, and not. So the rate at which we're actually stumbling upon each other in the kind of spaces that we're in is not indicative of the population at large. What do you think that means? Uh, well, I think that means that these are bubbles. I think it means these are bubbles. Bubble, sort of cultural bubbles, yeah, not, not yeah, yeah, economic yeah, yeah. bubbles. These are cu- cultural bubbles. And they're, uh, you know, I mean, you can't decouple them from being economic bubbles as well. I mean, is um, that, I think about a lot just about entrepreneurs and, mm-hmm. and, and they're, I like writing and talking, writing about entrepreneurs and talking to them. And this is not an original idea, but a lot of them are from the top of the socioeconomic mm-hmm. stratosphere, yeah, even if me. they're not very rich. They have a safety net of some yeah. sort, even if they don't think they have a safety net. Yeah. They they could drop out of college yeah. or they could not take a job. Or mm-hmm. And again, um, in terms of the life, right, they tend to be in their 20s because that's when you have the most sort of flexibility. Um, so you grew up in Chinatown? No, no. I, grew, I grew up in the city, but okay. I grew up uh, yeah, on Roosevelt Island, actually. Okay. Yeah. Um, which, which if, if you have not spent time in New York City, you won't know where that is. But that's the cool trail. Yeah, it's pretty much the center of New York City. Um, it's a small island that opened in 1976 as a, as a project by the state of New York. When it opened, it's all government housing. So these are projects done by the state of New York. Um, there was a thing called Mitchell Lama, which is the, the kind of the, the government initiative in which this created all subsidized housing. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was this grand experiment by the state. So now it's between the east side and Long Island City where Correct. Amazon wanted to go. And there's this cool park there they've opened up. I was there this summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's now it's so it was 76. You know, I, my parents moved there when I was three months old when the island opened within the first six months of it opening. And uh, what did your parents do? They're both uh, city workers. Uh-huh. Uh, so my mom was a teacher. She taught at public schools, public high schools. Um, the longest tenure she had was at Martin Luther King High School, um, which is in, you know, uh, I don't know, it's like the West Side in the, in the 50s, I think. Um, my father's a social worker uh, for the city of New York. Um, he worked in elderly home care. So he basically would go around for uh, people that were kind of, you know, on welfare or um, otherwise city supported and making sure that these elderly people had a, that the home attendants that had been signed to them by the city, they were getting their medication, they were getting, you know, whatever help they needed. And he would just walk around, you know, down here, Lower East Side, Chinatown, et cetera, do that, and come on. So your parents are, are government workers, you, and then you, at some point you're now in internet land and you're doing internet startups and mm-hmm. you're raising VC funding. How aware of are you at the time that your background is vastly different than most of the people you're working with, talking to, trying to help, or working with and talking to? Is that something in the forefront of your head or it sort of slips in the back most of the time? Uh, I think it gets more and more, it's become more and more apparent. I think it was always now, there, but yeah. I would say like it was apparent. And I think each year it gets more and more apparent. Do you feel like that's something you want to like address or that's just a fact of life and you shrug and it is what it is? Well, I mean, I think the times in a way call for it. I mean, I think we're in a moment right now where people are really interested in talking about where do we all come from? You know, what are the experiences that you bring to the table? And so in in that sense, I'm interested and I'm happy to talk about that because as you say, like, I think sometimes it's easy for people, even given how 
radically different Kickstarters from any other companies to just say, oh, you're a founder of a company or founder of a quote-unquote tech company. And you have a picture of what that person is, even if you can't really articulate it. And you do, and I would too. And I would too, and I I do too. I mean, you know, it's it's just like, you know, it's like bias, you know. It's like everybody's got some sort of thing going on. We're human. So I do too, and I think then it's important to kind of lift the hood a little bit so you're not just projecting and you're kind of, you're understanding, you know, where things are coming from. And so, yeah, you know, that's my experience. Like for me, I wasn't in the technology space wasn't looking to get into the technology space. I wanted to solve a specific problem that called to me that I felt was socially important. I continue to deeply believe in it. Um, and, you know, I come from a place where my parents were, you know, before social justice was, you know, now a new term, but this was the old 70s, 60s social justice, right? Yeah. And uh, that's the household I, I grew up in, right? It's like do something, you know, try to do something that contributes, And I think that's what's driven, like, a lot of the decisions, which is, like, I'm not going to turn this into some sort of vehicle that somebody else can use to profit maximize. I'm also not going to do that. I'm only here to try to solve this problem to the best of my ability. And, you know, my responsibility is to steward this to its mission, to help creative products come to life. That's why it exists. And I won't take, you know, I'm not going to take the shortcuts or I'm not going to take I'm not going to exploit it to enrich myself because I can and because everybody else does it and nobody would really question me. And I don't do it to be, you know, like, I don't need to, like, talk about it or say, like, hey, I didn't do this and people, everybody else took the money and ran. But, because this was normal, you know, in a way, like, this, listen, every day all of us make decisions that aren't maximizing our material interests, right? Some of us think that way. Yeah. uh, But not that many. Right. Well, I mean, it's true. I like. I, I do think maximizing material interest. I don't think you have a lot of people who are doing that. Like a lot no. of people, maybe like going I, over index based on the people I talk to and write about. But yeah. 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 Right. So that's true. Yeah. But I mean, as a personal level. Yes. Like that's you know, in a personal level, I and mean, maybe not as in their role at the company, which is greatly the dissonance between those two things is deeply problematic. Right. But between like what the, what people are mandated to do, but I'm just saying like. But there's a culture of saying. And again, this is both CEO culture and also just sort of pop culture now. If you, you can go up to the WeWork upstairs, the hustle culture, right? This idea of like you should be spending all of your time trying to figure out how to maximize your time so you can get sure. maximum return. But what return. I would say is that do those people not see their family? No, no. It's not, people, by the way, it's, I think it's weird and gross. Yeah. No, I'm just saying like do those people not see their family? Do those people not see friends? Like I'm, I'm sure it's all well beyond anything I would think is like the right way to be a person in society. Yeah. However, I think – what I'm saying is, like, except for true sociopaths and psychopaths, everybody is trying to balance it in some way. And they may over-index well beyond anything I would, like, feel like is okay. And so I'm saying we all choose yeah. to calibrate differently, there, right, within that. There was a, 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 a rough article about you in BuzzFeed last year. I'll do this very short version. It's after The you, least read article in the history of BuzzFeed. It, it, <laughs> it, 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 did, I, I remember, it was funny because I only found it through Google. I didn't remember seeing it across the first time around. Anyway, it's about you coming back mm-hmm. uh, and the second time to run the company and a lot of folks leave, our slash are pushed out. Um, and at one point, um, it has you talking to the staff about this and, and talking about your background mm-hmm. um, and, and explaining that, that you've got a different sort of take on the world, uh, kind of sort of in defense of, of what had been happening. Did that, did that argument, do you think that resonated with the company when you talked to them? Well, you know, I think it's always challenging to talk about like um – a body of people as like mm-hmm. one mind, sure. right? It's like when people are like, what, you know, the black vote is going to do this. What did all the people you think? Yeah. yeah, you know, so 
So yeah, there was probably uh, maybe 120, 130 people at the time. And I'm sure there was a diversity of, of opinion. And, and for me, I was more of like, hey, you know, I knew everybody really well for the first five years that we built this, that I was here straight through. And we're a small organization. There's more chance to interact and get to know each other, more touch points. And uh, five years of making decisions together. And then I was away for three and a half years. And I was away. I mean, like, I came back and I only knew maybe 20 people of 130. Why did you come back? It was never my plan. You know, I, I couldn't have been happier working on, going back to the studio, working on art. Um, but, you know, I, I've always felt like a responsibility uh, as a steward of the company. And not because of legacy or any of that stuff, to be honest, because I think, I don't really think that the stuff is that important. It's very personal. It's very ego-driven. But what I think is that, like, there's such a long continuum of people that have been involved in Kickstarter. From people who invested, you know, my friend who was a school teacher invested. It's not just like, you know, the Fred, Will, Fred Wilson or Union mm -hmm. Square. People who invested, early employees who took, you know, um, much lower salaries to help bring something to life. So they sacrificed, say, their, the kind of money they could have made because they felt the mission is important. I mean, this is a long continuum of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that I was the primary touch point for, you know, telling the story of Kickstarter, saying why this mission is important, saying what we wanted to create. And at the end of the day, for me, that was like, to live up to the responsibility was, you know, when the company kind of, you know, needed some help, that I wouldn't opt out of that. And I didn't say that this is something I wanted to do, but I, I didn't... So if that signal goes up, Perry, we need turn you it back. Down. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't necessarily like that. Like, hey, I got a call from the board, and uh -huh. they're like, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the board. The board isn't that massive, but it was more of like when we saw that, hey, maybe we need to kind of just like, I mean, it's hard when a you know a company exists. Most companies are trying to like, let's run to ring the bell, let's run to sell. It is a much more difficult thing to try to exist in perpetuity and actually try to get better. So it's challenging, and 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 um, when we saw like, hey. Rising that challenge is so hard, and we may not be on track for that really hard, really hard thing. Uh, what do we do? And then, you know, we look around. And it's like, hey, if we want to make a change, do we have anybody right now that we think would be able to step into this role? And when we didn't think we did, um, then I the think tip. it's like, okay, well, I'll see what I can do, you know, and 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 try to help and try to get things, you know, again where they need to be for the mission. And then again, you know, step back into the the the, you know, a role that's a more supporting role, which is what you're doing now. Which I've done. Which I which and was I'm it was now. that always the plan? I'm going to come in always. for a couple of years and then I'm going to step out again. I don't think the time wise was ever really a thing. It was more of you know, if it's three months, if it's longer. I think again, I was driven by not just the the responsibility that I felt to that long lineage of things, and I hope the sooner the better. And what what was the thing that needed to get fixed when you came back? What was the problem that you were trying to solve? You know, I don't think it was any one thing, but it's try to be a little bit like, it's not, not try to sprawl too much. I would just say like, everything works backward from the challenge, right? And the challenge for Kickstarter is to help creative projects come to life. And then the challenge is how do we have the most impact and the most impact over time? Because, you know, we're not working on one day, we're working as a thing. And so, and to do that, you start to ask yourself, well, okay, well, to do that over time, it has to be able to evolve. Right. And that means it has to be something where you can continue to get really great people to come and bring their ideas and bring their energy. People are super passionate about the mission. 
And, you know, some organizations you see, they just exist, right? Like some organizations, you're like, this thing seems like it's, like Yahoo just, just existed, right? Yes. Like at a certain point. And I think that for doing, the, the, the reason those happen- couldn't articulate why it existed. But the reason is because there's a group of people who are like, we're only focused on the next five years and then we're all going to be gone. Yeah. And the mission here is to make the most money. It's so just hand it off to people who are trying to do that. If you have a real mission, right? Like then- like a Greenpeace, like that, again, is the mission. So how do you not only have an organization that just exists, but is like, gets into a cycle where it can continue to be better? So that's a, like another, a second order problem. And and then the other thing, which is key, is how do you make it so it's not dependent on any one person or any two people or any three people or four people? Because if you want something to exist in perpetuity... For whatever reason. How does it work without you showing up periodically and saying, I'm the founder and this is my mission? Correct. Right. 100%. That was like going in the door, like of the five things to solve, X's to solve for, that, that, that was at the top of the list. So when you announced you were stepping down, at the same time, there was a story about the fact that your staff was unionizing. I don't think the things are connected. But the interesting thing to me was there was a line, there's someone printed an internal memo that talked about you guys raising money. I'm trying to figure out how that works 10 years mm. in when given this whole conversation we've had about that you're not going to sell, you're not going to totally. go public. Yeah, I'd love to sell. Uh, you've that. paid a dividend. How do you get someone to put more money into Kickstarter? And also, why do you need more money? Yeah, so um, I'll start with the first one. Maybe it's uh, yeah. uh, faster. I think the way we've always approached it is like we're always happy to talk to people who we think are simpatico partners, right? And whether it's you're going to raise money from them now or whether you're building a dialogue so in the future if there's something you want to do that helps you better the mission— or in the time of need, um, that you, you have, that dialogue is already established. In the space we're in, like the way we operate, there's a very small group currently of investors that could fit with Kickstarter because, as you say, we're not creating a big liquidity event of selling or IPOing. And so if you join us, we need you to be a very long-term partner or a permanent partner, like invest in, and and then be happy with in the years we're able to have a dividend or theoretically sometime in the future sell to another kind of approved investor mm -hmm. that's willing again to have um, so the way you're going to get your money out of this is either through a dividend or down the line maybe someone else is going to put money in and buy some of your right, stakeout right and so the people that we're talking about are now it's not people who are trying to maximize profitability um, for their investment we're, you're talking now about people who or, or organizations that are basically both looking at the impact Kickstarter makes in the world, like they would a nonprofit. And then also, yes, there's some potential financial upside as well. And then they can look at both those things together and say, this is worthy for us. This makes sense for us. And that's the group. Like everyone else in media, when well, you're not technically a media company, you're describing Lorraine Powell Jobs. So I'm assuming she's going to write you a big <laughs> I think that there's a, there's a group that we've seen over the, I've seen over the past four years or so, and I feel like, it's funny, like in a lot of ways with Kickstarter, with Public Benefit Corporation, with this conversation now, which is tied to that stuff, alternative models in a way, is I've had both the opportunity and the challenge of kind of being out there in uncharted territory. And so having these conversations the past three, four years with potential partners, fascinating partners, you see both like often you're sitting across the table from each other and you want to work together. But like there's some structural challenge to it, you know, and I... I just gave a talk uh, at the Skull uh, Forum that'll come out shortly, and it was specifically on this, like trying to go to that mecca, which I'd never been to before, uh, and just try to like let people know that, hey, there's often, say, institutions that we might talk to, or even foundations, that will invest for profit, and they'll also do a lot of impact work. 
And somehow because we are in the middle, we're a blind spot. And they don't intend for that to occur. It's just that they've built their administration to yesterday. Yeah, and there aren't many of you, right? Yeah, there aren't many of us. And Patagonia, which is a great public benefit corporation model, is a privately held uh, company by the Chouinard family. And as far as I know, I don't think that they have cap, you know, capital needs. And so as the other really prominent alternative kind of uh, structure of the U.S., a public benefit corporation, I do see like I'm kind of out there a little bit and having these conversations and seeing these challenges that exist right now and, and, and trying to spend time to like call them out and bust through not not just for Kickstarter, because what I feel is like we're going to need a non-binary world of corporate structure. We're going to need so we need some somewhere in between rapacious profit making and nonprofit. Yeah, and 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 um, we we need that, right? Like like, and it's not to say I'm not trying to impugn nonprofits. It's just more to say like we we need that suite yeah. of things, and to do that you need models and you need them to be validated and things like that. And so. I think often uh, for years about the bridge to somewhere, if we all remember the great Alaskan bridge to nowhere, <laughs> you know, that I think was some yeah. House or Senate project, some put some pork, the bridge to somewhere, right? And I think that, you know, Public Benefit Corporation is a piece of it. You know, uh, I have, since we formed that, entrepreneurs reach out all the time and say, hey, I'd really love to form a Public Benefit Corporation or be not a profit maximizing thing. How do I do it? Is this model good? And when we get to the point where people are like, is this harder to get funding? Right now it is. It's not impossible, and we did it, and I wouldn't, I don't tell anybody to, like, not go for it, and there's other interesting ways. It's better than ever every day. So um, that Venn diagram is widening out a little bit. It is, but busting through that wall, I think, is important, and the thing I, that, that I know, it's just like when Kickstarter started, and again, we're still talking about money on all these things, Kickstarter yeah. and this, the intent was always there. You were always going to give your, if your friend was like, I want to make this short film and, like, trying to raise 10 grand, you always had the intent to help them. But what are you going to do? Be like, oh, that's cool. Here's, Here's $10. Yes. It's so weird. So uh, once the form came of Kickstarter, then it wasn't so weird. And that's the same thing with all these things. Like as the language is established, as the forms like the way are established, as the ways to measure these things are established, the intent is there. There, There is money out there. There is good money out there that is willing to support Things like Kickstarter, just all this stuff is like needs to be developed over this next year or two. And, and, and just to, to go back to what do you need the money for? Is it to buy oh, out sorry. the Fred Wilsons of the world who've put money in 10 years ago and they want they want an exit? Or do you need to is there something you want to fund as a as a company? I think there's so many things we'd like to solve for. I think there's probably like five, six things. I think one is like, yes, I would love to be able to have more capital for the for Aziz and his team. This is the new CEO. Aziz Hassan is the new CEO. To like, you know, to be able to try to do more, right? Not, a, not you know, we've never tried to be big. We're 150 people now, but just a little more. Then a little more cushion. Again, we're not a profit-maximizing entity. We're not a rich, rich company. Like, all the money we made in the first five years, we used to build the office space. It's a nice-looking office. Thank you. And then, yeah, I think, like, helping facilitate some early shareholders and early employees and, like, people who— you know, like you worked for us for for below market wages ten years ago. You gave us money without hope of getting it back. Here's here's a check. Yeah, and like again, not this crazy like you know you wake up and you're a millionaire. Just like again, fair, like and like cycling out, like allowing those shareholders who've been in for such a long time to move on to somebody or an institution or somebody who's there and like, great, we're good uh, and. Checking those boxes. Um, and there's like a bunch of things like that that are kind of really, you know, they're, they're kind of like esoteric things, but yeah. they really kind of 
just like public benefit corporation, the ultimate goal is trying to create something that in perpetuity can dynamically and better focus on helping credit projects come to life. And so now my focus is kind of going in that direction, which is like where capital is one piece of it, corp governance structure, like public benefit corporation, things like that are, 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 are pieces of it. Um, it's like the above the maybe it's above the head stuff, you know what I mean? And so, it's important esoteric, esoteric stuff. But what I'm what is honestly like geekily cool is five six years ago when I was talking about this stuff, like people were like, yeah, 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 and like now I see people like, oh, they're nodding. Yeah, I mean, it's inside baseball still a little bit, but people get why it's important. Well, no, I mean we're we're having this conversation more often, right? This is a political conversation now, right? Totally. I mean, this is if this is this is a at least on the Democratic side, like what is capitalism? On the on the on the right too. Yeah. I mean, surprise, surprisingly, I'd say the one thing is that you know we have these binary conversations all the time, like capitalism, socialism, binary. What do you want to be? Again, there's no. There's no academic capitalism that's in play in this world. There's no academic socialism in play. There is only things in the middle. Every regulation pulls you one way or the other, or deregulation pulls you one way or the other, right? Even culturally, those things pull you one way or the other. So these conversations have to be non-binary. And um, in America, you know, we decide by each regulation whether we want to be a little bit more academically capitalistic or a little bit more academically socialistic, right? And so... We, understand, we should stop talking about it in this way of like where it's really binary and start to like get under the hood a little bit and see things like, for example, the current Delaware law that mandates that companies put have shareholder primacy, which ends up being maximize shareholder value. Right. This is the sort of accepted standard definition of capitalism. This at is least the source everyone code. Everyone who comes through here, yeah. This is the source code. I, I love the conversation people have today about like, Last couple of years about AI, and people are talking about like, let's imagine a world where you tell your AI, go to the store and get me um, like uh, some water, and to do that, it just kills everybody because it's the fastest way to get it some water, mm-hmm. right? It's like this is the boogeyman of the AI, right? And I get it, like that's some scary stuff. And how do you teach the AI to have X to values? not kill people? Yeah. yeah, let's have this conversation. I, I applaud everybody who's doing this. I mean, it's critical. But the underlying thing is there is that you'll tell some things. You'll tell this intelligence something, and it will execute it in this way that may be literal and that the outcome is not what you wanted. What I would say is that since the 80s, springing out of Chicago School, Milton Freeman in the 70s, we've been doing the exact same thing already, which is that the way our, our, our law is around the mandates of profit maximization and the, the religion of this kind of very specific American capitalism that has come out of that, is it has been doing the exact same thing we fear, which is that people go and work inside organizations that are telling them that you have to maximize, you have to be a legalized sociopath. Here's the crazy thing. Like, my last thought is this. We live in a country where no matter what you do, no matter how unethical it is, that we allow the answer to be, you can just say, well, I'm a business person. That's insane. And why do we do that? Because we just say, oh, that's the law of the land. And that's just how things are because we're not, you know, whatever, Soviet-era communists. It's This it, is going to be an f- interesting year to watch that conversation evolve Indeed. or maybe not evolve. This is great. I, I promised a baggy conversation, and I meant mm. that in the best possible way. We got it. 
Thanks, Perry. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Um, Recode Media is produced by Golda Arthur. She's great. Joel Robbie edits this podcast. He's great. You guys listen. You're great. We will talk to you very soon. <laughs>